Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to our new PR Week podcast episode with Arvind Hickman. Hello, I'm Arvind Hickman and welcome to the PR show. Wiley, the godfather of grime, has been permanently banned from Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for an anti-Semitic tirade over the weekend but the social media platforms have faced a backlash for allowing scores of videos and offensive posts to be broadcast to Wiley's large audience for several days after they were initially called out. PR leaders are furious about Twitter and Instagram's delayed response to Wiley's anti-Semitic spree, and some have called for a zero-tolerance policy towards hate speech on social media. Others have suggested the PR industry can take a role in educating society about the scourge of anti-Semitism which rears its ugly head far too often on social media and in society. Today, we are joined by industry leaders who say it is time to take action to combat anti-Semitism, and we're going to discuss how. Joining our panel is Ready10 founder and MD David Fraser, Ketchum MD of brand Sophie Rain, Frank founder and chair Graham Goodkind, and Tin Man Communications director Natalie Neve. Thank you for joining us. I want to start off, guys, um, by taking a deeper look at what has happened the past few days on social media. Sophie, I first found out about this through your understandably angry tweets. Can you take us through when you came across Wiley's post and how it made you feel? Yeah, so I sort of was perusing Twitter on my phone, as I tend to do, um, of an evening in front of the telly. And um, I started to spot some chat about what was going on. And then I started opening up his tweets um, and it was really, really horrifying, horrifying and terrifying in equal measure. Um, I couldn't really believe that it was going on and it seemed to have been going on for quite a few hours by this point. And it seemed to just be getting worse and worse um, as the evening uh, drew started drawing to a close. Mm -hmm. um, 
I actually had uh, a, a new Wiley's manager. He is a Jewish guy, um, and I'd worked with him sort of many years ago. He's been in the music industry for some time. So I reached out to him and I said, like, what the hell is going on? Um, and he didn't reply to me. Um, and then obviously the rest we're kind of all aware of. The, the anti-Semitic terrain just continued to get worse and continue to go unchecked. And, um, you know, it's, it's, although the platforms have taken action, for me, it feels uh, really incredibly late. Okay. Can I just ask you, Sophie, do you have any sort of um, understanding of the context behind his anti-Semitic attacks? Is this something that, that he commonly does or is there a problem with him, for example, and, and his manager? So my understanding is that, um, that this has spouted as an issue that he's had with his manager. And I think they've got a history of kind of parting ways and, and getting back together. They've worked together for over 12 years. Um, so I think it might have started as that. But I think fundamentally, you know, and, and, and David Fraser will, will attest because we were speaking about it at the time, um, you know, this is not the first show of anti-Semitism from Wiley. Mm. Um, it's actually been included in lyrics to certain songs that he's featured on. Um, so although I think maybe perhaps it might have stemmed from a disagreement with his manager, um, you know, what it's turned into is clearly the airing of um, some extremely bigoted and abhorrent views um, that have been shared for everybody to see and left on for way too long. Okay. David, I understand that you may have worked with Wiley or he may have worked on, on a campaign that you were involved with in the past. Yeah, I can come in there as well. So, well, there's quite a lot to this side of it. So I think saying that he's this is a dispute with his manager that's got out of control is letting him off the hook. We've worked with John Wolfe before as well. Um, he's a very uh, demanding character and he knows what he wants. And members of our team will have, let's say, had the odd run in with him. They've managed to not uh, go off on an anti-Semitic tirade when we've had those discussions about uh, Wiley's management and John Wolfe. So I, I think, not, not, I'm not in any way suggesting Sophie or anyone else was saying it, but if that's ever levelled as a kind of excuse on behalf of Wiley, I, I don't have any time for that. Um, I was aware of, of some previous that Wiley had had. He'd collaborated on a song, I think, in 2017, called Get Paid, where he, uh, one of the lyrics was, uh, I'll move like a Jew for the money, which is a kind of very centuries old trope connected with Jews and money, which lots of people will be familiar with. I actually heard it randomly on a, uh, I just heard, happened to hear the track and thought, what the hell is this? And was aware of it. Then sometime later, a situation transpired where we were working with Wiley and I kind of regret what happened, to be honest, because I was aware of it. I'm Jewish myself. I did bring up, well, you know, there was this incident where he collaborated on this track. And the long story short is we still continued to work with him. And I sort of, uh, I kind of give myself, beat myself up about that continually, really, because I overlooked it. The people who I worked with overlooked it. Everyone kind of shrugged a bit like how Twitter and Facebook did for this week and and I regretted it um from that moment that we kind of went ahead with what we were that what what we were going to do with him and wish that we hadn't now then fast forward to now months later and this anti-semitism which has obviously been festering in him 
rears its head uh, 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 and now it's all out there. But yeah, I, I, I have my own personal experience of it that I've reflected on significantly. Okay. Graham, you're also Jewish as well. When did you find out about Wiley's post and, and, and what's your sort of views on how long it took? Yeah, I, mean, look, I found out on it from, uh, from Sophie, actually, and Sophie, who I follow on uh, various forms of social media, I saw her getting very, understandably, irate about it um, just after the, you know, the comments came out. And um, I was as horrified as, 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 as probably everyone was. I mean, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, so that was my first exposure to it. In terms of what I, I kind of thought about it, I mean, I, I couldn't believe that it took um, so long to react. I know Twitter have issued an apology saying, we are sorry we did not move faster. For me, um, that won't wash. Um, similarly, Wiley's comments about um, his apologies, where he said, I apologise for comments that were looked at as anti-Semitic. I mean, I don't think you need to words, use the words looked at, my friend. Um, that's really not um, part of it. They were blatantly anti-Semitic. So I'm afraid his apology doesn't wash. Need, you know, And it doesn't matter for me what the reason for it. The excuse was he fell out with his business partner or he fell out with someone from work and then relied on, on blatant anti-Semitism. And then I don't know what's happened, the amount of people that fall out with each other in business the whole time you know every day is, is loads of people but they don't resort to the uh, the sort of abuse that 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 they had to, uh, you know that that the, the, he extended to basically all jewish people and you know trying to tar everyone with the same brush just because it's fallen out with someone i mean i'm passionately against anti-semitism the, the guys all know about it I've, I've i'm a bit older than than them as well and i've spent many years working with different jewish organizations basically looking at I guess the new frontier of social media being a place where anti-Semitism is perhaps more rife than anywhere else. Um, but it's kind of not like um, social media is a, it's, it should be like, I should say, um, what it is in real life. I mean, unfortunately, it's a fact of life that um, Jewish uh, tombstones and cemeteries are often defaced. Um, swastikas appear on it. it, happens, you know, every now and then, seven, eight times a year, you read about it in the Jewish press. The next day, by the next morning, I promise you those those tombstones are wiped and scrubbed clean. The uh, the swastikas are removed. I mean, it's a terrible thing to do, but it's dealt with within hours. I mean, and to say that Twitter and, and the other social media giants couldn't deal with it at that pace, I find, uh, uh, you know, a, a sorry affair. Okay. I want to bring you into the conversation, Natalie, because you're the only member of our panel that isn't Jewish. What, what is your view on what Wiley did and, and the way that the social media platforms reacted? Well, obviously, I, I agree with the rest of the panellists that obviously Twitter was, it was too little too late. But I think if you look at the number of followers Wiley has, he has half a million followers versus the number of Jews in the UK, which is 300,000. It really puts the enormous kind of power that he has over these highly impressionable young people um, on, on his social media platforms into perspective. Um, looking at Twitter, Facebook and Instagram rules, they do have rules against anti-Semitism, but they just aren't doing enough to enforce them. And I really think they need to show more leadership um, on this front. Um, okay. I, think, I think what's interesting is that Obviously, talking about Wiley and what Wiley's he's he's done, it's brought brought this all to the fore. But I think it's really interesting if you look at the stats about anti-Semitism on social media. A, a post, an anti-Semitic post, is uploaded every eighty-three seconds, which is absolutely shocking. So Wiley might might be suspended. 
But if it wasn't Miley, there is a huge amount of anti-Semitic posts up there. Um, I think 400,000 posts every year. Um, and it, th this piece of research by the World Jewish Congress found that it takes an average of three months for them to be re removed. So it's not just uh, their policing of Wiley that needs to be called into question. It is just the, the kind of the amount of time that these platforms are taking to deal with this hate that is festering on their platforms is just unacceptable. But that's pretty alarming research, isn't it? It takes three months to remove anti-Semitic posts on average, and there's about 400,000 a year, possibly even more. Do you think that social media platforms are getting this wrong and that they need to adopt a more aggressive position, for example, um, a zero-tolerance policy, where if you do post things that are anti-Semitic, you're struck out immediately? Absolutely. I think if they take a zero tolerance kind of perspective on this, they can always review posts in retrospect. Having taken so long to act on this, um, those posts from Wiley were still up as of yesterday. That is unacceptable for half a million people to be viewing. And if you looked at the engagement that, that those posts were getting, the comments, it's actually so frightening. Um, so, yeah, I think they can always review a, a removal of somebody's account, um, but you can't retrospectively look back and say, you know, posts with such vitriol were up for such a long time. Um, I, I, th I think they'd need to do more. It's, it's absolutely unacceptable. Okay, Natalie. Uh, David, what's your view on that? I recognise we're slightly in danger of all the panellists agreeing <laughs> on everything. Um, but I totally agree. And I didn't know half of those stats that, that um, Natalie quoted there either. And I agree with you. They're shocking. That The problem is with all these comments, anti-Semitism, but also racist comments, is there is not enough pressure being applied to these platforms to police them properly and to remove them properly. Um, now, if they were mainstream media outlets, if it was a message board on a national newspaper website, um, these things would be moderated pretty tightly and these things would be off there. But for some reason, social media platforms as publishers appear to fall into this gap where there isn't the pressure or the will from them to police them properly. And I think that has to change. I think it will change through two ways. It will change through pressure from financial partners and sponsor but really the main change is going to be legislation and the burden falling on these companies to moderate them themselves. Because at the moment, the only driver for them moderating them is the kind of sense that they probably should. And that's why they have done it, but they've done it extremely slowly. They need a bit more of a push from the legislators, in my opinion. The sad thing is that, unfortunately, the business models of these social media platforms are all based on engagement, and there is no financial imperative for them to police that engagement, even if it allows this bigotry and prejudice to fester. So once that changes, I think, like David said, there'll be more of an incentive for them to, to, to really take a lead on this rather than you know, react to goodness knows how many million people on social media putting pressure on them to do something about it faster. What I'd like, to, I'd like to think that that's the other reason that they'll change is because more and more people will find these platforms less and less relevant to their lives and more and more distasteful. And obviously, you know, immediately after the, uh, the comments were made, a lot of members of the Jewish community in the UK went on a 48-hour abstention from using different social media channels. Uh, and I think that will hurt. Um, the, mm. the social media channels themselves. And I think 
you know, with other subjects, look, the, the sort of abusive behaviour that just just roams free on social media isn't just confined to anti-Semitism. Let's face it, it's we feel it as Jews in this country very closely anti-Semitism, and it's a very very open wound for us. And it's only a generation ago that many of our relatives and ancestors ancestors were were wiped out, um, you know, as a result of it. But uh, I think the more and more people that start withdrawing from social media and using it less, and I certainly use Twitter less personally than I ever did before, mainly because that uh, it's allowed to run free and unchecked. And if the social media companies won't take their own action, if legislation won't happen, I just think that decent people will just just not not open them on their apps anymore. Completely agree with you there. I think that you know consumers want to engage with brands and platforms that reflect their moral values. And if these platforms continue to to kind of be a place where hate is allowed to, I don't know, but fester, then you know more and people more and more people will start moving away from them. And fester is a good word, Natalie. I think fester is the fester. right word. <laughs> yeah, it's the right word. Sophie, I just wanted to get your views on the zero tolerance thing and what should be done um, to social media platforms if, for allowing this to continue. Did you have any strong views on this? Yeah, I mean, to echo a lot of what David said, really, I mean, the terrifying truth is that over the past decade or so, social platforms have essentially obliterated such a big chunk of newspaper journalism, yet refused to assume the civic and moral responsibilities of these publishing platforms that they've, they've pushed out. Um, and it's frightening because we're living in a world where conspiracy theories that were once kind of confined to the fringe are going mainstream, hate crimes are surging, as are attacks on religious and ethnic minorities, you know, anti-Semitism is just a strand of that. Um, I think Sasha Baron Cohen spoke recently and he said something that, you know, he, he put it beautifully, which was the social media platforms amount to the greatest propaganda machine in history. Um, and it's slippery. I mean, uh, I think David alluded to it that Facebook and Twitter, they sort of say they're platforms, they're not publishers, which in my view is an incredibly disingenuous description designed purely to protect their bottom line because they are making editorial decisions on a daily basis. You only have to look at what Facebook was doing during the pandemic, taking real action against fake news. They were flagging and removing misinformation. Twitter uh, removed posts deemed to be glorifying violence, including posts from Donald Trump. So all of this kind of proves that they are accepting the legal and moral responsibility for the content they host. So they need to be doing the same thing, the same approach for hate speech. But I don't think it's going to happen. I really don't. Um, I don't think these big mach money-making machines are going to do it properly. Um, and so, therefore, there needs to be greater regulation and legislation in place that, that's going to compel them to. I mean, looking at it and what is coming, it seems like it's going to be 2022 before the government publishes the uh, online harms bill. But it seems to sort of carry exactly what we need it to, to stop the scourge of, of, of hate speech. Um, that would see a new regulator being introduced for social networks. Uh, the power to kind of find those who um, fail to remove hate content and they could be fined up to 4% of their global turnover. And also fundamentally what will hopefully, you know, finally elicit change will be that the regulator will have the ability to ban sites in, in, entirely. And to be honest, as the sad truth is, I think that these sanctions are likely to be the only language that social media companies will understand.
Okay. I just want to pick you up on, on what the industry might be able to do about it a, a little bit more. So, if you, I know when we spoke last time, I sort of flagged the idea, it, you know, is it possible, for example, for agencies that work with clients, the clients that fund these, these platforms, to advise them not to use these platforms? I know it's a, it's a bit of a, a sensitive and, and sometimes awkward conversation, but do you believe the industry has a role to play to, to help um, pre- put pressure on these platforms to change? I mean, you can see that that is happening. Um, I think it was last month that, you know, 500 or so companies partnered up to stop advertising on on Facebook until they did something about hate speech. So it does feel like there is a movement um, towards it where brands are taking, um, you know, the matter really seriously and threatening to, uh, you know, stop spending with them. I think... The reality is, although I think Twitter saw a dip when this when this ban was in place, that they've soon sort of made the cash back up when uh, the, the green light's gone again. So, you know, I think the in a nutshell, I think that you know brands and and consumers of as we've seen may stage you know these boycotts, but I think fundamentally the only route to change is going to be via greater regulation and legislation. Okay, does anyone else have a view on that, on, on whether the industry can play a stronger role in, in advising clients to spend their money elsewhere? If I can come in, I think the kind of vitriolic hate speech is only one part of the problem. And there's quite a lot of echoes to this argument uh, of the types of arguments that were put forward a month, six weeks ago, when there was lots of discussion, when you guys hosted a podcast around issues like Black Lives Matter. People, the vitriolic racists like Wiley, that we everybody knows Wiley is a tow rag. Everybody knows where he is. In a, in a sense, he's not the problem because he's very easy to identify. The people who spout far right kind of hate, we know where they are. And yes, it's a given that this needs to be dealt with quicker. But the other part of it is the microaggressions that exist, the tolerance to anti-Semitic views, the way that normal good people let them kind of slide and that that they are I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me In a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just allowed to, as Natalie said, fester. And so whilst, yes, there does need to be a lot of reg- a lot regulation on the stuff that is very clearly has no place on a platform like that, There needs to be a lot of education. Where I think the PR industry can help is anti-Semitism has become rather complicated, probably too complicated, um, a thing for a lot of people to understand when really it needn't be. It's 
you know, if you boil it down, it's discrimination against Jewish people, but it's wrapped up in so many other issues and it's owned by a certain part of the kind of the intelligentsia that, that talk about this issue that actually I think it's very confusing for people. So whilst I think there's a job on the, the, the wileys of this world with, con- with um, making sure that that content isn't given space to breathe, I think there is a big job to be done on educating people about what anti-Semitism actually is, breaking it down, making that message clearer and communicating with people in a way where they understand it and where they don't stand for it and they don't just allow it as well. I want to touch on education in, in, in a short while. Just to begin with, I, I just want to sort of um, ask you guys about your lived experience and some of the things that you see, uh, anti-Semitic things that you see and experience. Perhaps I'll start off with you, Sophie, and then I'll, I'll go to Graham and then Natalie. Can you just sort of help give us an, a bit of context and understanding about how pervasive anti-Semitism is today? First of all, I'll start by saying my mum had some really deep concerns about me doing this podcast in the first place because she was worried that I would get targeted. So that gives you a flavour. Mine too. Mine too, by the way, Sophie. Just so people understand, I had exactly the same conversation with my parents. David and I were were talking the other day, you know, you, you spend your whole life as a Jewish person deciding if and when you should disclose the fact that you're Jewish. Sometimes it feels safe to do so, and other times you keep it hidden like some sort of dirty secret. And when I was researching for this podcast, you know, what's what's sad is that David and I are not alone in feeling like that. 73% of Jewish people admit to hiding things that identify them as Jewish out of concern for their safety. And, you know, I think Graham and David and I will tell you that actually when you stop and you sit and you think about anti-Semitism in your everyday life, you realise how prevalent it is. You know, comments have been made my whole life from things that perhaps don't seem offensive on the surface, be it about being good with money or saying some, some people would say that I didn't look Jewish from sheer ignorance, the amount of times people have asked me whether, you know, we have sex through a sheet um, to really horrific, extreme um, instances that have happened to me in my lifetime. I've been on a group email where someone made a joke about a gas chamber. I've had an electrician come to my home who tell, told me that my house smelt of Jew. And these are just a, a snapshot of things that happen. Um, and, you know, it, obviously, as you'll go in your last David and, and Graham about their experiences, I fear that they are going to echo what I've said. Um, and that's a really, really sad truth. Um, you know, anti-Semitism is, is, is on the rise. Um, hate crimes as a result of anti-Semitism are on the rise. Um, and it's a terrifying truth to share. OK, David, do you want to ch- um, jump in before I get Graham to share his experiences? Yeah, I, so the, the couple of things that I, I think may surprise a lot of people who haven't had to think about this too hard is, first of all, it's a real and present thing in my life and certainly is for a lot of Jewish people. Um, my grandmother who sat in my garden on Sunday afternoon is a hundred years old and she had to come here as a refugee at 20 years old. She still doesn't know what happened to her parents uh, in the Holocaust. We believe that they died in Auschwitz, but we still don't know that. That is something very real for me and my family that you can touch. This is not a historical thing for people. Now, people can then think, well, that was that was a one-off. It wasn't a one-off. The Jews have been persecuted for a, a long time, and I won't give everyone a history lesson. Um, but as it happens, on this day, 
in uh, the 13th century, Jews were expelled from England. And there are dozens of examples of Jews being persecuted. So this is not a new thing. So when Wiley says some of the things that he said, this has a lot of echoes and, and, and brings up a lot of fear in Jewish people. I have had the same comments that Sophie has had that perhaps Graham will echo um, as well. The terrifying thing for me is that it has become mainstream in the last few years. These comments have got a voice, perhaps through social media platforms, and perhaps I know there will be people who listen to this podcast that won't like what I'm about to say, but people like Jeremy Corbyn and the, the previous incarnation of the Labour Party becoming mainstream has, in my opinion, made these issues mainstream, and that is what is so terrifying. It feels like it is it is increasing, not decreasing, as far as anti-Semitism is concerned. Graham? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess my experiences are, are similar. As I said before, I'm a bit older than the guys, and, and my experiences of anti-Semitism for me started actually on campus. Um, and um, with what does just David just said about sort of the far left, and I like to I call it the intellectually intellectualization of anti-Semitism. And I encounter a lot of problems on campus just trying to with the Jewish society that that happened to be on my campus at the time, and it and it getting attacked and banned by the far left. You know, this was 25, 30 years ago. Um, so you know, and I, I I made a determined effort to fight it. Then there used to be something at the time called the Anti-Racism Alliance, which was against all forms of racism, obviously. And I used to go on their marches and be involved in some meetings there. So I, I I've always been one to fight racism and particularly anti-Semitism all my life. Um, and I, I do see it on the increase. If you look at the stats from the CST, the Community Security Trust, who are the, I guess, the security organization for Jewish people in this country, all the stats point to a massive increase, both in physical acts as well as in acts on social media. You know, my kids uh, recently, they've left school, but when they were at school, when they went to a Jewish school um, in Hertfordshire, near where we live, um, the security at school and at most Jewish schools around this country is unbelievably sophisticated with um, uh, with Israeli normally trained security guards outside. They've received, received tra training in it by the Israeli army to protect them. My kids are used to doing drills um, in school um, for any instance where there's incursions on the property, alarm codes, alarm signals, what to do, where to run, where to hide, how to behave. And this is the stuff that Jewish people in this country are living with today. Um, and, and personally, more recently, for me, I've seen it on social media um, and um, probably unwisely. Um, if I see friends of friends, and I use the term friends loosely, um, indulging in anti-Semitic behaviour, I, I tend to engage with them. And it's kind of a bit for me, it's hand-to-hand -hand combat for me um, on social media. And I'm big enough and old enough to be able to handle myself. But some things just push me beyond the point of being able to keep my mouth shut. And Jews have been very good at keeping their mouth shut and not speaking out against anti-Semitism. I think it's good now that we're having a panel where we're not doing that. I think also just to finish is that I think actually the PR industry has been a beautiful safe haven for me. And having you know spent my entire career within it, I haven't really encountered any anti-Semitism from other agent people and other agencies, other people involved forms of media. I've never really felt it within our industry. So I guess, 
you know, that, that's 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 a good thing. But once you kind of, and that's maybe because there's a lot of intelligent, well-lived people who kind of like mixing with lots of different people and get that. I don't know the particular reason why, but I've always felt very comfortable and at home in the PR industry as far as being Jewish is concerned. Unfortunately, in other aspects of life, not so much, and it's getting worse. Natalie, um, you mentioned um, prior to this podcast that you had actually experienced or, or observed anti-Semitism in your working life. Do you want to just share some examples there? Yeah, so obviously I'm not Jewish, but I feel really passionately about involving myself in this podcast. And like uh, David and Sophie said, I was a advised by so many people not to participate with comments like it's a minefield or oh you're brave or careful you might get backlash but that's precisely why I wanted to participate as a non-Jewish person because I think it's really important that the non-Jewish community ally with the Jews and just help raise awareness and educate people about what is going on um so Tin Man was founded by Mandy who is a who is a Jewish woman. And I think we, we were founded seven years ago and we have come up against quite a lot of anti-Semitism. Um, and like David said, it's not the, you know, hate that Wiley is spewing. It's the microaggressions and the unconscious bias, which is kind of thinly veiled as a, a funny comment or a joke. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. So for example, we've had a comment from a Pre, a, a prospect, a new business prospect, that when we were costing up a campaign because our founder is Jewish, that we were in some way greedy or charging more. Um, we worked with a number of different um, app developers from uh, Tel Aviv. Obviously, the, Israel is one of the world leaders in tech innovation. Um, but some industry people suggested we won those clients purely due to our Jewish connections and not due to our own merit and the the kind of strength of our pitch, which is highly offensive for a number of reasons. Um, I have stories from junior members of staff who have been so reluctant to put where they live, so North London, on their CV or their surname for fear of employers thinking that they come from wealthy families and don't really need a job. Um, and even our, one of our other directors who has a Jewish surname has had so many times, well, you don't look Jewish, um, or had, you know, a raised eyebrow when they eat a bacon sarni after an awards do, almost like, they, they, you know, there's an implication that they can't really be that Jewish if they're eating pork. Um, I think it's just, it's just these small microaggressions that people just don't realise are anti-Semitic. They are just so ingrained in the way that society thinks. Um, they're shocked when you actually pull people up on, on them and say, actually, you know, what you're saying is wrong. Um, and, it, and it's like it, it amounts to all kinds of libel. What people struck, fail to understand sometimes is it's a very particular form of, of racism, anti-Semitism, in that it's very, people understand with other forms of racism that that's oppressing a, a minority Often with anti-Semitism, it's what people call punching up racism. So the Jews are the kind of old, the traditional tropes are Jews are in power. Jews have money. Jews are responsible for um, kind of the, the evil in the world. Jews are clubbing together to run the world. And the things that Natalie is saying, I, I recognize all of them. I don't even notice them so much. but And that's why they do need to be called out because I think a lot of other people, like she says, when people are pulled up on them, they're quite shocked because it's it's far too 
endemic, I think, um, for people to recognise properly unless they are pulled up on them. I think I agree with you, David. I think it need, there is a perception problem with anti-Semitism. I do think, you know, reading lots of articles over the weekend, there's a huge um, community of people and a body of thought that wants to rename anti-Semitism as anti-Jewish racism because people understand um, race in the context of racism slightly better. And if you look at the definition of a Semite, it's kind of confusing. It includes both Jews and Arabs. And even in Wiley's apology video uh, that came out today, and I use the term apology loosely, he doesn't even understand what anti-Semitism means. He still claims he's not a racist before then repeating all the racial stereotypes and generalizations about Jews controlling the music industry. Um, I mean, just to put it in perspective, I mean, I don't have a huge social media following, but I am quite active on Instagram. I have 4,000 followers. And I posted about uh, Wiley over the weekend and how strongly I felt about it. And I lost 1% of my followers. Um, so whilst, you know, I don't have a huge amount of followers, consider that statistic um, when you're looking at, you know, these huge influencers who will happily post about Black Lives Matter won't post about anti-Semitism. And I reached out to some of them and I said, why on earth would you post happily around when, you know, um, Ireland legalised same-sex marriage or your Black Lives Matter, but why won't you stand up against anti-Semitism? And they are just terrified that their fee-paying clients, their brands, will not want to work with them because they believe it's a political issue. And I think it's a re-education peace needs to be done, that this is not politics. It's a scapegoat to say that, you know, um, anti-Semitism is, is closely wound up in politics. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue with society, and I think people just need to understand that. Okay, we really want to sort of touch on what the PR industry can do to help educate or some other ideas. Do you want to sort of kick off some ideas on, on what you think the industry can do to help tackle this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of with the guys on on the confusion around anti-Semitism, and that's probably one of the the biggest issues to tackle it. Um, that separation from racism is essentially perpetuating this us and them dynamic between Jews and non-Jews, which is thereby feeding into the very foundation of racist treatment of Jews throughout history. So it's a bit of a a, a bit of a, um, a sticky situation, but I. I I do think, and you know, when we spoke the other day, Arvind, I did say that you know I did feel we were an industry of amazing storytellers, um, a, an industry that consistently is able to kind of ideate and execute campaigns that can drive really significant positive change. Um, and everyone on this call has has been a part of those. And even just uh, I was judging the PR Week Awards a couple of weeks ago, and you know the amount of work that 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 people are showing up that can really make a difference. It made me feel like if if anyone could try and take it on, then then our industry would have a good chance. Okay, uh, I, I just want to get David and Graham's views yeah. on this um, before we wrap up. Yeah, David. Okay. What, what, okay. what so, so the first thing I, I appreciate we've only got a few minutes left. And Israel's not been mentioned. And I think it's quite important just to touch on that because I understand why people say this. They always they always have the, the same question, which is, can you criticise Israel and not be 
uh, you know, is explain the separation between criticism of Israel and criticism of Jews. It's very simple and it does get confused. Yes, you can criticize Israel and the actions of Israel. It has got nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It is when you equate the two that there is a problem. So yes, you can you can object to the actions of Israel and still not be anti-Semitic. Um, but that sort of points to kind of what needs to be done. The message needs to be simplified and explained better. I actually think what Natalie's talking about, the movement to change, to redefine anti-Semitism as anti-Jewish racism will help in that explanation and help on that journey. And communications professionals can do that. The other thing is, actually, it's not rocket science. It's the same stuff that was said on similar podcasts around Black Lives Matter. How do we make sure that we make a change? It's very simple educate yourself read up on it don't keep asking us to explain it to you because we don't always know all the answers we being jewish people ed educate yourself on these issues and why they're issues um get the people around you to educate themselves call out these aggressions microaggressions and anti-semitic um uh, occurrences when they happen and have a zero tolerance um attitude towards it. it it's as simple as that um i think they are some of the things that the pr industry can do i also think there is like i've said all along for the last three quarters of an hour there is a big job to do around educating about this issue and that 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 can be done through communications and communications campaigns and there's plenty of charities and education organizations out there that would be grateful um for people's help on that okay graham you've got a few minutes final word uh, thank you. I mean, I, I mean uh, yes, you can rebrand it if you like, but I think for me, uh, around anti-Semitism, you like, for me, I think we've got to educate. Um, and uh, I think that's the way, certainly in respect to the Holocaust, in terms of uh, addressing the lack of knowledge and information about that has been very successful over the years in terms of educating people about what the Holocaust was. Things like the Holocaust Educational Trust, the Yellow Candle Project are all brilliant ways of changing people's views and opinions. And I think maybe, as it's a PR podcast, maybe Jewish people need to do a bit of a PR campaign for Jewish people in this country. Maybe we take it for granted a bit that we know we're not all doctors, dentists, lawyers, or whatever, like maybe perception would have us uh, believe we are. Uh, and there are plenty of Jews in this country that are being a force for good in society. There's people in all sorts of jobs and roles doing some great things for this country and being good, normal citizens. And maybe it's time that we need to be a bit proactive as a Jewish community uh, to illustrate how we are part of the fabric of British society, how we are a part of this world and, and, and kind of just generally normal people who just have a religion that might be slightly different to someone else's but that's all we're normal people and either accept us or or get lost uh, and i think maybe that sort of message might be quite powerful coming from the jewish community I, I just also one last thing i saw i don't know if any of you guys saw but a campaign went live yesterday in the u.s um called hashtag no denying it where um it was holocaust survivors making personal appeals to mark zuckerberg to take down uh, posts regarding holocaust denial so from from looking at um how we can uh make an impact on the social platform um and certain you know things that are not legislated i think that's quite a powerful um idea 
It sure is. And I really look forward to seeing what the PR industry does to help better educate people about anti-Semitism. It's definitely something that we all need to stand up for. I'm afraid that's all we have time for, but I'd like to thank Sophie, Natalie, David and Graham for joining us and our production partners, Marketeers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit the PR Week website and support our journalism. This podcast will also be made available for free. Um, it won't be behind our paywall, so please do share it as well. On behalf of the PR Week team, until next time, I'm Arvind. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the PR Show podcast with Arvin Hickman. Brought to you by PR Week. If you like what you heard, please leave us a nice review. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.